0: I always tell young writers that you have to find your Alfred, and Alfred was Batman's
1: conscience. Hi, everyone. This is Ben Guest, and today I have a treat for you. An interview with award-winning Washington Post reporter Kent Babb. But today we're not talking any of his articles. We're talking his masterpiece of a book, Across the River, Life, Death, and Football in an American City, which is a nonfiction story of a high school football team in New Orleans. It is the best book I've read this year, and I start the interview by just gushing about how good this book is for two minutes, and then Kent and I have a great conversation. We talk process, writing, rewriting, word choice, what Kent calls writing nerd prom, and then from there we talk about coaching and the idea of the obedience model of coaching and what good coaching looks like. But we start with me complimenting Kent for a minute straight about how great this book is. Enjoy. It's about everything. It's about America. Um, And it, it is so well done, so well researched. And, you know, everything I've just said makes it sound maybe a little bit academic or a little bit like homework. It is so well told. It's literally like reading the best fiction writer whose imagination just carries you along and whose work just carries you along so it's a combination of this rich reporting and this amazing amazing storytelling
0: thank you that i mean that's unbelievable to hear and i mean it's also like a a little bit of a relief i mean because like when you work on something this was a three-year process start to finish and i don't i mean I, I figure this goes without saying, but like, I mean, I don't take this lightly. I mean, because this is a community on the West Bank of New Orleans where people have it really, really hard and it's almost entirely black, you know, a white guy from D.C. parachutes in. I mean, I could have done a lot a lot of damage and and like if I were not careful and even I mean, even to this day, you know, like I, I worry that I was not an appropriate caretaker Of these people's stories and you know what else could i have done because it's so hard for these people and not just the young people i mean it's high school kids yes but it's also grown adults who you know are just trying to get through today and dodge a bullet and stay employed and uh, get their insulin if they have diabetes or you know not you know, I mean, these are people with like irregular access to food and electricity. And I mean, I write this in the book, but I mean, for a while, I considered changing names. And you know, these are 15, 16, 17 year old young people and Nick Foster, who was sort of always like tell young writers that um, you have to find your Alfred. And like, whether it doesn't matter whether it's a story or a book or just in life, who is your Alfred and Alfred was Batman's conscience. And like, that's how he's written in the comics and in the movies. Um, He serves as Bruce Wayne's conscience. And so Nick Foster was my Alfred. And so every time I would have an idea pop into my head, I would say, Nick, what do you think about this? Um, And he would tell me it was either ridiculous or I was on the right track. And when I said that I was thinking about changing names to protect the kids, he's like, nope, if you're going to tell the story, you have to tell it straight up or don't tell it at all and you know nope like it, it was something that i took very very seriously i wrote this book four times four drafts i rewrote it from first draft to second draft completely over the structure is largely the same but every word changed and you know the pandemic granted me an extra year i was supposed to originally publish in august 2020 and so it published in august 2021 and I'm glad because, I mean, this is a much more difficult, and sensitive story than should be done, even in one year. I mean, it seems like a long time, but it ain't.
1: That That's what shines through uh, among many things. So you mentioned you didn't want to do damage. And of course, it's not up to us to decide, but I do not think you did any damage. But more it's, so you work for the Washington Post. There is a story where you parachute in and you write something that, you know, the, the DuPont circle, the Georgetown crowd reads and then goes on with their um, morning cup of coffee. And this is so richly detailed. I, I wonder, so years ago I did a, a a documentary about a high school girls basketball team in Mississippi and the four main characters, quote unquote, were were black. And all I felt at the end of that year long process was I want them to feel like, yes, this is what happened. This is the story that I see myself in that story. And I'm guessing you're not in long- I'm guessing that's how you felt about this book. The, the, the people you are covering, that's who your loyalty is towards. And that is who they- you want them to see themselves represented in this book.
0: and I mean it's tricky and it's hard to explain I think to anybody who has never been a writer or a documentary filmmaker or you know a hashtag creator or whatever but um, at the end of the day my job says that my responsibility is to the reader and that's true mostly but in this case I had two responsibilities and you know I, I have I feel zero embarrassment in journalism school you're taught that Um, You must be objective, the soulless, cold creature who cares only about the story, truth, justice, etc, which like, I think that sounds good. And if you spend a year around anybody, you either love them or you hate them. And I do not hate the people at Carr, Bryce Brown, Joe Thomas, Nick Foster, the list goes on. I really, really like these people. And I i mean, I would venture to say that I have like affection and love for them and I almost get like choked up like talking about it um, because like they were so good to me and I felt like I owed them, you know, just like a, an honest accounting of what their life is like. Um, and, and, and Ben, what's interesting about this is like they don't think the story is remarkable. Like they don't think that their life is, they're like, why are you even here? Like, this is a book, what? I'm like, you don't understand, like, this is the most unpredictable, chaotic, just page Turner story, even before I wrote a word that I've ever even been a part of, like, you guys just like you live it, this is your normal, Um, and just for me to be around that and witness that and be a white guy brought into this entirely Black world, um, I mean, it's, it's, even if this is not the most important story of my life. I think it is probably the honor of my life because like that that doesn't happen in journalism. People don't just like let you in unfettered, especially if you look like me and they look like them. That's just not how this works. And so I mean these are my friends. There is a balance, but I I'm supposed to be embarrassed by saying that I care about these people. I don't I care about them a lot. And I I think that actually helps the story. I don't think it hurts it.
1: I agree hundred percent. It's a work of great humanism in that there is no good and evil in this story, right? there There are people that you care about, some of whom have done or accused are accused of things that that are awful. But it's a tribute to to your storytelling that you you sort of well, so for me, where the where like my jaw metaphorically started to drop was, and I should have seen this earlier, I guess, but you have a chapter, so th- there's the. The ghost of a murdered um, player kind of hangs over the story. Uh, His nickname is Tonka and there's a chapter early on where you expand out from the high school team and the coaches and the players to um, going back and forth between the detective who's assigned to the case and Tonka's mother and then it was like oh he's doing that like we're gonna the, the football team or the season is just the launching pad for just radiating out, and again, the word I come back to is humanism. The the humanism with which you write about all of your characters is is beautiful.
0: Thank you. I mean, and and I would say uh, I would offer one mild correction. You said there's no good and evil, good or evil. I think there's good and evil. Um, mm-hmm. I think every uh, and I this is deliberate. I tried this. Um, I believe that every human being that walks this earth or has ever walked this earth. People like to say, hey, is so-and-so a good guy? My first book was about Allen Iverson. You know, is he a good guy or a bad guy? No, we're all on this spectrum where we're all kind of moving at all times. We're all trying to get a little closer to the good end than we were yesterday. And if you're close, at least when I'm writing about you, I want you to be flawed. If you're inherently good, like Bryce Brown is... Uh, The main character, I would say. So he's the head coach of the football team. He is full of goodness. And so how do you how do you add balance to that? Well, he's 400 pounds, he has severe uh, mental health issues that are, you know, he's got anxiety and depression, imposter syndrome, horrible uh, eating disorder, um, really treats himself terribly. Um, on the other end, Kiyoka Thomas, who is Joe Thomas. Uh, Joe is the senior linebacker. If Bryce is the main character, Joe is the protagonist. And uh, when the story begins, his mom, Kiyoka, is in jail. You know, she's been in prison much of her life. Uh, she was something of a gangster on the streets of New Orleans. Man, she legitimately scared the hell out of me. Like, I went to her house the first time. There were two dudes. I didn't know who they were, what they were there for. Um, I am an absolute outsider, she just got out of prison, and and the first thing she said to me was, you look like the people who locked me up. Like, I don't know what to say to that, I'm sure that's probably true. Everybody, whether you are perceived as good or not good, I'm gonna push you a little closer to that center. Even Hurricane Katrina, uh, which was this devastating, horrible catastrophe of a storm that New Orleans still hasn't uh, fully recovered from, I tried to write Katrina is <laughs> not entirely bad because it created what became the car school that we know today, the car football program that we know today. So especially when it comes to human beings, I, I think the writers do a great disservice if you try to make somebody one dimensional or uh, simple, because we're not, we're just not, nobody is. Um, and that takes a lot of doing, you know, it takes a lot of thought and takes a lot of going back to these people and be like hey look I know you hate talking about this but I know that you're afraid of this or I know that you're anxious about this or I know that you're insecure about this well that's exactly what I've got to drill in on sorry Omari sorry Nick but you know you used to run drugs from Birmingham to Atlanta you know I gotta ask you about that and everybody they did I mean like they some people were more sensitive than others but That's just my philosophy on something like this.
1: Right. I always come back to Maya Angelou's famous quote of I'm human. Therefore, nothing human is alien to me, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. So many different directions to go. So we're talking about all these weighty things. And I want to just reiterate to the listeners, it's such a readable book. And it's it's like butter. The sentences are so smooth and it's just one to the next. So let's. Let's dive into that. How, how you know this is just going to sound like a, a a total softball question, but how do you get these your sentences so smooth, so so again, it's just effortless, one to the next.
0: Well, a, a lot of effort goes into that effortlessness. Uh, effortlessness. I remember, like in the like nineteen ninety two Grammys or something like that, Steven Tyler uh, took the podium and said, "You have no idea how expensive it is to look this cheap," and. <laughs> Like, I, I just love that quote because you like people generally have no idea how hard it is to make something look easy. And I mean, just from writing it four times and reading it, I mean, the way that I do it is, you know, I, I blast through the first, I call it a shit draft It's my first draft is a shit draft. Cause you got to get all the shit that's inside your head onto the page and it is shit. Um, like it's never in any kind of like fully formed, uh, thing, but I have to get it out of my head and onto the page. And then I can really start chiseling. Uh, The second draft is always the biggest leap. And then by the third and fourth drafts, then it's like microsurgery. And so that's when I was going sentence by sentence, word by word, reading on planes, reading again and again. I mean, I marked up longhand, you know, printed out, marked up with markers. If I didn't like the way this sentence was Framed. I mean, it sounds fine the first time. And, and most people don't know the difference. I know the difference. I would say it out loud. Um, like I speak it out loud because it's got a I mean, I believe that writing has a sound to it because, like in my head, anyway, it's my voice reading the words on the page, even if I'm reading silently. So there is a sound um to writing, and and I just believe that it's got a cadence. Um, one word plays off the next word and the previous word and i understand like we're in like huge like writing like nerd prom here but i mean i just i think that's how it's done and i went i mean it's like a hundred thousand words i went word by word by word four times um and just if if i if i hadn't reached my deadline if they didn't finally tell me to stop i'd still be working on it
1: so let's talk word choice i mean the the most if we if we break down uh, a piece of writing to its most elemental, it's the individual words. How do you think about word choice when you're going back and chiseling and then doing microsurgery? What are you looking for? What are you thinking about?
0: I mean, for me, like accuracy has got to become number one. But uh, we always talk about accurate, accurate writing, I believe in precision writing. And, and that's actually a decent little example. What's the difference in accuracy and, and precision? Well, there is a difference. And for me, like accurate is, if you hit the target with your arrow precision is if you hit the bullseye and there's something I'm trying to say here and you know the the chapter uh, that's ultimately about the police department which is the one that you referenced earlier it's a grieving mom uh, Rhonda George who was Tonka's mother who's on this sort of endless probably uh, quest for peace because her only son was murdered for reasons that more than likely, nobody will ever know. He did everything right. And she's just a mom who wants closure. And the person who's in charge of that closure to her is Detective Rael Johnson, who is a very successful homicide detective in the New Orleans Police Department. And but I wanted to expand not just telling their story, but telling larger stories. Ultimately, they have things in common and they're on similar treks but they don't know that because they see the world in different ways. And so you have to sort of glancingly hit at these things. And I mean, originally Rael was going to be my villain. I always sort of, I I told him that even just because I, I I told him early on that I wanted him to be my Jamie Lannister, Um, the person who at the beginning, everybody hates, but you eventually kind of understand that, you know, why he is the way he is Um, like, that's not something that succeeded. Because Rael, I think, is a good man, and I think he's trying, but I mean, he's facing, you know, this immovable object that is trying to solve murders in a city where that's, that's nearly impossible. And I mean, he really does try. Um, but the way, like, it it's such a delicate thing to try to capture that without a reader taking a side. Uh, it, a reader probably does take a side without thinking about it. But like, had I written Rael as a villain, as I was originally planning, it just lacks the subtlety and the nuance that I needed. I want you to have that thought. just like, man, like, this is a good dude, but like, he has this impossible job without me telling you that. And for me, like, that's the difference between accurate writing and precision writing. If you just naturally come up with this idea in your head, then I've succeeded. If... You don't, then I haven't. And there's a couple of places where, you know, maybe I'm the only person who knows it that, that I wish that I had said it a little bit differently. Um, but that's uh, those are just things that I think about all the time. Just like, what am I really trying to say here? You know, what's really the purpose of this? I can look at every chapter and tell you what this chapter is really about. I mean, chapter four is about race. Uh, chapter six is about the police department. Chapter 10 is about identity. Uh, chapter 11 is about escape and home. Um, every chapter has like a subtext. It's really about something that's not what it seems to be about. And and that's by design. And it, yeah, I mean, it, it takes a lot of work. Uh, and again, I know I sound ridiculous saying this, but um, I mean, it's just true. I mean, like that's that's how I think about it.
1: The subtext for each chapter, did that reveal itself to you? afterwards, or are you, do you have a sticky note taped somewhere, you know, when you're writing chapter six, this is about police department, this chapter is about race?
0: I mean, a lot of it occurs in my head, um, like where I think this scene or this revelation or this moment might go. Um, And then, and, and this is true for when I write the stories for the Washington Post Uh, If I have an X-Man power, it's that, like, I can see a story in my head. And, like, I I usually know when the lead happens. I usually know when the ending happens. Not always how the middle parts happen. Um, But I can at least recognize that and begin building. And just build and build and build and build. And eventually a story emerges. Um, You know, I I put a lot of things. I use Scrivener, which is a writing software. um, And it has, like, a notes function. You know, I put everything into that you know, this might go here, it also might go here. So I put it in multiple places. Um, You know, one of my fears is that I would include the same thing multiple times I did until, you know, probably that fourth draft, like, hey, you already said this, Kent. Um, And because like, they work in multiple places, but it's easy also to forget about it. And so with me, I knew that I wanted to have a chapter that Dealt with race head on. I I had to have a race chapter. Race and racism is a huge part of these young people's lives. Um, I would have been a poser if I had just danced around that and pretended like it wasn't true. That would have been more of a white guy coming in and trying to preserve his own contentedness, um, which isn't for them, that would be for me. And that's not what this story, you know, ever wanted to be. Like this wanted to be an honest portrait of a place that people who look like me would rather not look. It's just way easier for me to turn around and look at the French Quarter than it is to look across the river at Algiers, which is right there. It is a half a mile away from Jackson Square and St. Louis Cathedral. And it's right there, but people, I mean, I'll just speak for myself. It was easy for years and years and years for me to just pretend like that world didn't exist. And if I had not had a chapter about race, then you know, that would have been, that would have been BS. And, you know, the the chapter about Omari Robertson, who's an assistant coach that I believe is chapter 10, maybe 11. Um, it's a little late to be like still kind of uh, establishing characters. He's in it before that, but he also asks a very important question. And is there a different way? And, you know, Bryce Brown's coaching style is not for everybody. And a lot of my friends, particularly white friends, I uh, think it's unnecessary. Uh, they use a lot of profanity. They use some insults. They put these kids in pressure situations by design. Omari has a very different philosophy. He coaches as a peer and with compassion. It's not a great fit in the car world. Um, but also he he is a living, breathing, walking question and that question is is there a different way and so that that works late that question is is most powerful late in our story when you're already kind of emotionally invested so maybe it's not ideal to wait to like really unfurl the omari character but that chapter is about identity and who you are and present and and just being who you are no matter who you're surrounded by Um, and that question of is there a different way
1: Let's go back to word choice and sentence construction for a minute. When And you took, you mentioned that you'll read the entire book out loud. And I agree 100%. Matter of fact, the editor for my book is a guy named Glenn Stout, who is the series editor for Best American Sports Writing. And I just had a conversation with him the other day where he said the same thing. It's, it's like music. You hear it, good writing, you hear in your head like a piece of music. When When are you... When you're constructing a sentence, when is it finished? When are you satisfied? Well,
0: I mean, never, but uh, eventually you have to be done. (laughs) Um, The editors eventually want you to be finished. I mean, uh, to be honest, I mean, I usually know. I mean, like when when I read it and I'm like, okay, yeah, time to move on. You know, like it says, it has the rhythm I want in in like the later drafts I was shortening sentences I have a lot of uh, clauses a lot of commas and continues and I tried to shorten sentences as much as I possibly could because there is a I mean this is you know there's a lot of punchiness in shorter sentences Hemingway had it right but also that can become a crutch and so you don't want to do it too much there still has to be a little bit of voice in it so usually with me I have a comfort level that I can say okay like this this is right, or it's not. And if it's not right, I can't move on. I mean, even if it's in chapter two, and I've got nine chapters to go. I mean, there was a situation where I had to read and, you know, put in my final notes within like three days. And that's tough, you know, and I think they would probably just assume you just be like, Oh, that's good. never mind. I can't, I just can't do it. Um, so I did that and probably submitted way more corrections than they were hoping. But it just has to sound right. I mean, I look at this as you know, I, this, this kind of story is so amazing that I, I'm not gonna get another one. Like, this is my shot. Uh, So I'm sorry that I've held up our uh, schedule here, but
1: But sorry, not sorry.
0: Yeah, I mean, kind of. And like, I'm just like, look, you know, it's my name on it. This is my baby. Like, we're getting ready to like, release this thing into the world. It's got to be right. Um, It it takes a long time. I mean, like, I, I, people always think that a writer, Is somebody for whom writing comes easy? Not for me. It's hard. I mean, it's remarkably hard for me. And I have to get in like the right frame of mind for it. And I mean, my, uh, an old professor of mine had a, like a sign on his desk when I was in college that said, a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult. And That is so I mean, I don't know if I'm any good at it, but it sure is hard. And it is way more difficult than it used to be. I'm not getting it's not getting easier. It's getting harder for me. And maybe that means I'm getting better at it. But it's hard. And every sentence, every word has to lead into the next one. And it's impossible to explain to somebody who, who doesn't write, you know, why that's so important, because even I hear my own words now, and it sounds ridiculous, and may be ridiculous. you know, if you really care about something, if you really care about a project, whether you're a chef or a woodworker or, you know, a builder or a writer, you know, like if you put what you, everything you've got into it, you know, like at least you won't regret it. And I, I just knew that I couldn't half-ass this thing and regret it. Um, if I did, I, I would never forgive myself, regardless of what anybody else thought.
1: It shows. And again, the, the, the themes of this book are the most important and weighty themes that our country is facing but the reading of it is so enjoyable and so that that is the that's the result of everything that you're just talking about how many times did you read it aloud
0: at least once um like certain parts that i had that i knew were problematic or just weren't there i mean usually it was just like you know a couple of paragraphs and you know you tinker and tinker and you know, read them out loud. I just finished my first podcast. Jerry Brewer, who is a column columnist at the Post and a friend of mine, we just finished a, a podcast called "America's Song." It was it uh, published around 9/11. Um, and there's a level of screenwriting and dialogue involved that I had previously taken for granted before I did a scripted podcast, and weirdly. The thing that prepared me most for that was this book, because rhythm and cadence just matter so much, and you have to it's still not the same when you're reading it as it is when you're speaking it. Like how I'm talking right now is not necessarily how I would write. It may be similar, but it's not the same. and in and like you have to acknowledge that fact almost before you can even move on. But um, with me, I knew how it, you know, quote unquote hits the ear. And if it doesn't sound right, it, it's just like the straitjacket that gets tighter and tighter, the more you struggle. And eventually I would crack it. And it's just like a relief. You know, it's not like, sadly, there's no joy. There's just like, okay, God, you know, occasionally I'll go back and, um, you know, take a break, go do something else, <laughs> and then go back to it. But usually I've, I've just, <clears throat> I've just, I obsess over it. I mean, I spent, I would spend like six hours, just like in this yellow chair I've got upstairs, just marking and marking and marking, and and I think this is it. And then writing longhand, I think this is it. And then you type, and it's different, you know. And it may just be like was a sentence with one fewer or more syllables. Um, like if you replace one word, it fixes the whole sentence sometime And then then you can finally breathe.
1: So one of the things when you get to your third draft or fourth draft, I think one of the keys is finding a way to read the manuscript fresh, to read it anew. I think reading aloud lets you do that. Something that Glenn recommended to me, which I now swear by, is printing it out in a font you hate. Do you have other tricks like that that you use?
0: Um, the, I don't necessarily change the font, but just printing it out fools my brain into into reading it differently. And I do this with the stories in the posts as well. I never am finished with a story until I've printed it out. And we we own a printer pretty much only so I can print these things out and highlight them and circle in blue marker or whatever it may be. Because even though it's the exact same font, it looks the same. My brain doesn't interpret it in the same way. So yeah. I mean, I, don't, I can't even explain that, but I definitely do that. The setting matters to me, you know, like I'll, I'll just change rooms. You know, if I'm like, if I feel stagnant, you know, in my reading, I will go to a different room or I'll go outside. Sometimes I'll go, go sit in the car. I don't turn it on or I, I certainly don't drive it, but, uh, but I just go sit in the car, um, and, and read because it's, people are going to be reading this in all of these environments. And so how, how, do I, how do I want them to receive this message? I did a lot of reading on planes, not necessarily you know, by design, but because that's where I had, had some time to do it. And it's just such a different environment. You have ambient noise. The lighting isn't great. Your brain has to exercise in a way that it doesn't elsewhere. Um, and so I actually think that's helpful in kind of a strange conditioning way.
1: One of the things I'm guessing made the project easier, and this is clear, essentially from, from page one, is that from Coach Brown on down, this is a program that preaches and lives radical honesty at all times. It's, it's a beautiful thing to, to witness as a reader. Um, so I imagine that help in terms of people are used to being challenged on anything they say. And if there's any hint of bullshit, that being called out immediately.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just it doesn't it doesn't fly. And, you know, like that's if, if they say that they had a flat tire or the, or the dog ate my homework, like that's immediately attacked. You know, like, wait a second. What? Well, show me the torn up pieces of paper then. Um, I mean, every day is a cross examination. And it's stressful, but it's also probably what creates or at least contributes to greatness. I mean, this is a team that's been in the state championship game 10 out of the last 11 years. And I mean, that's amazing. I mean, Louisiana, you know, maybe our most pound for pound football rich state in the country. And so, I mean, it's highly competitive. This is class 4A and they're just in the state title game every year. Uh, Doesn't matter who they lose, who they get. They're just there. And so, I mean, I do believe in not just the power of leadership and people management, but the difficulty. It's hard to manage different types of people. You know, a Joe or a Leonard are best friends, but they're also dramatically different people from dramatically different parts of this city. So how do you manage them? How do you manage your own coaches who kind of think you're full of shit sometimes? And I mean... I've been around good bosses and bad bosses and you know, good spouses and not good spouses, you know, who are friends of mine, uh, people who are loyal or disloyal. And I've never been around somebody or or a group of somebodies who are so self-aware of their own shortcomings and not, they don't apologize for them. They're just like, this is just, yeah, I'm 400 pounds. What of it? You know, like, yeah, I love to eat. That's yes. And then I remember the first time this is right after there's a moment in the book about midway through where a young woman runs onto the field after a game and threatens to kill Trent Washington, a wide receiver on the team. It's a pretty big moment that kind of stops the narrative in its tracks. And, you know, I, I was there the day after that happened. Bryce and I went to dinner and he just, Bryce is a guy who orders a lot of food. It was me and him and a guy named Tyga, who was the equipment man. and sort of the body man for Bryce. It was always the three of us. Sometimes a player would come along and and Bryce just orders and, orders and orders and orders and orders and orders food. And, you know, he just, we don't ever eat it all, but he just loves to order it. Part of it is because he can. And I just remember one night, I've been hesitating to ask him anything weight related because like, I just, that's a tough question. And it's the first thing you notice about him that he's this gigantic human Um but also, he's around people who have been telling him to lose weight probably his whole life. And so I was just like, look, man, do you think you stress eat? And he just like had this look like, uh, yeah, of course I do look at me. And I just like, I mean, it was such a relief. And at one point, I had to ask him, you know, hey, man, I'm sorry, but how much do you weigh? And, you know, he offered 387 pounds. And, you know, that may or may not be accurate. He hadn't weighed himself in years. But There was no shame in any of this. The insecurity that these people feel, they don't hide. You know, I say in the beginning, in the author's note, you know, I've covered football and sports at every possible level. This is by far the most honest anybody has been. And pick your level. Managers, head coaches, assistant coaches, stars, Doesn't matter. They all want to project just the best of themselves, and they want to conceal the fact that they have fears, doubts, insecurities. When in reality, those are the things that really like make us the most alike. You know, I mean, I'll never dunk like Jordan or hit a golf ball like Tiger, but I bet deep down we have something in common emotionally. And so, why don't we talk about that stuff? So, I mean those guys talk about it. I talked about it myself. I shared parts of me and my family and like what I'm struggling with and things like that uh, with them. Those guys told me things they'd never told anybody else. And I'm sure I told them things that I've never told anybody else. Um, and their just sheer refusal to be ashamed of that is remarkable.
1: Right. It's, it's those vulnerabilities more than success that, that connect us, that make us, that help us connect with others. So switching gears from the, the writing aspect to coaching, which you, you touched on this earlier and, and as a former high school coach and, and quote unquote professional coach overseas for basketball, and I coached in the Mississippi Delta public school. So some of, some of the same behaviors I've seen and my own personal evolution of a coach is now totally different from, from Coach Brown, who again, from page one, almost it's verbal and sometimes physical confrontations that coaches have with players. And it's so strange because I can, on the one hand say, or see that that's not, um, that's not the coaching philosophy I have. And based on my experiences also see that there are kids where you have to break through the bullshit. The bullshit they've constructed for themselves and in in your book and in, in cities all across the US, the bullshit society has constructed for them. And ultimately at the, at the end of the day, Coach Brown is, yeah, it's about winning games, but it's about saving lives. And the lives you need to save are, are the ones that require Breaking through the bullshit. So what are your, what are your thoughts on all of that?
0: Yeah. I mean, Bryce has a saying, you know, one of many, you know, you've got to reach them before you can teach them and reaching them is very difficult. And I think reaching anybody is difficult, especially when they're teenagers, especially when they're flying high on adrenaline and hormones, and they think that they're on top of the world. And some of these guys, you know, come from traumatic backgrounds. Um, so, I mean, I, there's not really a simple way to explain coaching. I mean, two things I think that I have much more of an appreciation of than I used to way less than the football stuff. And, and I should say that I learned more about football and football strategy than I did in this one year than I did in 15 years as an NFL and college football reporter. Um, it's just, it's crazy. Um, like almost like how simple football and sports can be when you finally like see through the looking glass but anyway the act of actually teaching this stuff and retraining a young mind especially a traumatized mind is is excruciatingly not easy and I think it starts with honesty like we talked about just like eliminating bullshit eliminating pretense And the second thing is just like, don't treat people like an archetype, you know, like people are individuals, everybody is a little bit different in some kind of a way. And to say, well, this worked for so and so, so it should work for you is nonsense. And not only is it nonsense, it's insulting. And so this is why a lot of coaches fail. This is why a lot of bosses and business managers are crappy at their jobs. It's because that sucks, like having to get into everybody's life and invest in each person individually sucks. It's hard. It's time consuming. It's thank It's thankless. It sometimes takes years, but that's the difference between a great coach or a great boss or a great manager or a great father than, than somebody who's mediocre. I, I really believe that. I mean, this is an absurd thing to say, but that doesn't make it any less true, but it's changed how I parent my four-year-old daughter. I don't yell at her or cuss at her usually. Um, but, but I am honest with her. Like if she, I mean, she's four, like I said, and like, she started to ask about some pretty complicated stuff. And I do sometimes say, you know, Hey, like this, we need to talk about this when you're a little bit older. Um, but I don't lie because I just think that it starts with trust. It, it, continues with communication and it's all about personal investment in what someone is stimulated by. What are they motivated by? What purpose are they trying to achieve? And it's obviously much easier because I've got one kid and Bryce and other coaches have sometimes dozens. But I mean, I gotta tell you, I mean, I as as a journalist, I've never been a coach, I've never been a teacher. I have such a new appreciation for coaches now. i mean, i'm I'm the guy that used to you know pile on when somebody has a bad game. and you know now I'm starting to get annoyed with the journalist who's asking these like over simple simple questions, like oversimplistic questions that for me, are like a little more clear. And you can only see it if you've ever like lived inside the coaching world. And so I mean, it's interesting living both of these living in both of these communities, but I just have such a new appreciation for the difficulty in, in the time it takes to be a successful coach. Like I said, I went to the University of South Carolina. Shane Beamer is the new coach. The team is not good. I mean, like right now the team is pretty terrible, and they're going to be terrible all year. And I think that's okay, because it's about gradually changing a culture a set of expectations you know what's it going to be like year to year to year not game to game to game and you know i know that this is such a cliche but like we're such a you know we we have to have immediate results all the time and i'm the same way i mean i want it to be like this yesterday but that ain't how it goes and if you're a coach like you have to you have to understand that because if you don't it, it won't work if you try to cheat the system it's like building sources in journalism if you try to cheat it if you try to make it go faster. You try to take a shortcut. You know, you're the one who's going to wind up in the briar patch, not the other person.
1: Right. The domains that a coach or a teacher need to be responsible for, need to have expert knowledge or some level of knowledge about is so vast. So coach Brown is a genius at the X's and O's of football. And he's a genius at working with people with young people who are in the midst of terrible trauma and those two domains are universes apart so i, I as a former coach and teacher and and both in critical needs school districts i uh, i respect everything you just said because so much is asked more than any one person can really do
0: well and, and that's partly why i think that bryce is such an exceptional person and character because you know I say this at the end you know there's a lot of Joe Thomas's you know who again is the linebacker who's just so severely damaged and there's very few Bryce Browns in this world who just give a damn you know I mean it's just so easy to say you know that you're you're gonna be broke or in jail or dead by the time you're 20 well that's a huge cop-out how do you actually change that? How do you day by day by damn day actually go about changing that? I mean, it, it's one thing if you're, I mean, do you remember a few weeks ago uh, there was that scene on the sideline at Trent Dilfer's school where he really got in the face of a player. Yeah,
1: I, I tweeted about it actually.
0: And yeah. I, well, I'm curious, I didn't see your tweet, but I'm curious what your reaction was because I, my reaction was very different than I think my reaction would have been a few years ago. Now that's it, like a very privileged predominantly white school um but sometimes a coach has to get in a kid's face I don't know if that's what that kid needed I don't know if that's what a kid at that school needs but I don't know I mean I I now think that coaches sometimes have to it, it's not all it, it may look like impulse but it may not always be impulse so I'm I'm curious I would love to ask Trent Dilfer this, is it, was that a moment you lost your temper or did that kid, did you know for weeks that kid needed that? I don't know. I'm Stuff like that is just, I think it's much more interesting to me than it used to be.
1: Yeah, let's dive into that. So my take on that was it's total bullshit on Dilfer's part. And part of it, you just elucidated, which is um, this is not New Orleans. This is not whatever. This is a privileged um, private school in Tennessee. And for the most part, in my experience, when a coach loses their temper, when a coach gets angry like that, there isn't a greater plan in place. It's just, I'm pissed off and I can't contain my anger. And that's what I saw with Dilfer. It's very much an obedience model. That's what traditional coaching is. You have to do what I say regardless. And at that moment, and I, I read something about the, the, the fallout afterwards, and I can't remember exactly what the issue was. But at that moment, Dilfer wanted the kid to sit on the bench. So he physically pushes the kid backwards, pushes him down to the bench, and then is pointed out like stay, you know, almost like you're instructing the dog. And it's the obedience model of traditional coaching that, that I came to reject personally and that I think as a society we need to reject There have been incidents that you describe in your book that are more physical than that between coaches and, and players. The difference is it was not based on, you need to be obedient to me. Everything around coach Brown's program is about being honest, confronting the bullshit. That means for players and for coaches and you detail, you, you document that. So. What I saw with Dilfer is I'm in charge. Listen to what the fuck I'm saying. Do what I say. What I see in, with Coach Brown and his program is everybody at every minute can be called out for their bullshit, adults and kids alike. Including the, the head coach. Yeah, including, including the head coach. Head coach. And, and right.
0: Bryce, you know, one of his many, many sayings is your replacement is in the room, even my own. And I mean, that's coming from the head coach, you know, meaning that if he sucks this year or sucks today, tomorrow he might be out. And I think it's really interesting because even throughout the reporting process, I still had a hard time squaring that that was necessary to grab a kid's jersey or scream in his face or to insult him. And and I know ultimately that's because of my perspective being what it is. In my world, being in the white suburbs of Washington, D.C., that's not necessary. And if somebody put their hands on my kid, I'd be pissed because I don't think that's necessary. Bryce and everyone that I talked to, they just, I mean, and I challenged them on it. I'm just like, look, you know, just where I come from, that is not necessary. You don't touch a kid. You don't curse at a kid. And he's like, yeah, that's true where you come from. And, you know, if, if I tell, I mean, this is a almost direct quote from the book. If I tell Joe Thomas, you know, hey, please go get that water bottle off the field for me, Joe, he's going to look at me like I'm crazy and he's not going to do it because everything is a daily respect ladder, I guess. But if I say, hey, Joe, go get the fucking bottle, he'll go get the fucking bottle. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, like it's it is different. And I have to accept that it's different. You know, like that's where I tried really hard to write without judgment. Um, there's lots of things that don't make sense to me. And I think because they don't make sense to me, that's insightful because that's crazy to me. I recognize it as different. Um, and I mean, nobody shied away. I mean, like a, another, like kind of nothing example, uh, that, that I also had a, a hard time squaring when Edna Carr wins a state championship they have a champagne shower, you know, so they all get together in the locker room and play loud, super loud music. Uh, a lot of them take their shirts off. I mean, it's a hell of a scene and, you know, they're, they're dancing and and really just sort of going nuts and there's champagne. I mean, there's like six to eight bottles of champagne and they spray all over the place. And the whole time I'm just like, you know, man, and I asked, I bet I asked six or seven coaches this, you know, where I come from, like, you know, having alcohol, you know among around teenagers that, that's a that's a big deal and i just remember bryce's reaction the first time i asked him about that he was just like yeah i hear you man and like i get it i wish that i lived in a world where that was a big deal but i don't like i live in a world where i where my phone might ring tonight and somebody might be dead or you know like something like some kid might get into a fist fight with his dad and run away and be gone for 3 days or somebody who has a staff infection you know, where we have to shut the locker room down for six weeks. Like that's my world where, like these kids don't bathe or eat or have running water. Um, and like, I mean, just it, it's just it really opens your eyes, you know, because you're just like when he says i I long to live in a world um, you know, where spraying kids with champagne is a is a crisis, I mean, it it's an interesting way to to change how I look at the world. Now, he's not wrong and I'm probably not wrong. And I think that's just like a difference of perspective, but it's also why it's easy for people like me to discount his perspective. I'm glad I asked, even if I don't always have to agree with, you know, what the answer is, or if I don't even fully understand it, I have to trust that in his world in his environment, he knows what's right because a, it works And B, he lives there. I don't. And for me to apply my perspective to that universe is foolish and really arrogant.
1: How often did you see Coach Brown lose his temper?
0: Like legitimately and not acting? Um, I mean, I don't know that I ever did. I mean, he loses his temper, but it's it's honestly, um, I mean, it's all a show. I mean, he he like when he uh, the, I mean, the, the one time I, I think is when this is this begins, you know, a later chapter. It's not about the plot necessarily, but he just hadn't eaten and he's a big guy. And if he doesn't eat, he's, you know, pretty bitchy. And, you know, like he, he threw the whole team off the practice field and um, sent everybody home. But that wasn't a lack of control that was his blood sugar had cratered and he was he he gets impatient he doesn't get angry or violent or volatile he he gets angry or volatile because he's getting into character and like he I mean and I believe this like I mean it's it's what those kids need um and he likes to make he likes to be convincing enough that he wonders how realistic it was um but, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, like when, when he I don't think I ever saw him lose control, you know what I mean? and yep. he he might have lost his patience, might have even lost his temper, but uh, he never lost control. Others did, but not Bryce. Bryce yeah. never loses control
1: that, that that's exactly the sense that I had of him from from your writing, and to me, that's the difference between him and Delfer. and you know i again i I don't know, because I just read a little bit about the fallout, but maybe that was Dilfer trying to have a teaching breakthrough moment. But to me, it just looked like somebody, like an adult, like I've seen a million times with a million coaches, who's angry and, and has lost control and can't control his emotions. Because even when Coach Brown is feigning anger, it's about confrontation. It's about, I'm confronting you about this action or this thing you said, and I need to break through it. And there's a time that, that's healthy. With Dilfer, it was literally about, I want you to do this thing I'm telling you to do, which is sit on the bench. And, and he just looked like an adult who'd lost control.
0: Well, and, and also, I mean, to your point, it, it occurred in a mixed setting. Where any of these confrontations took place at car
1: closed doors That's always the
0: in the bubble. It's you know it's what's what happens at car stays at car. And you know, I didn't witness anything really that was you know anything that like approached abuse or um, I mean, things made me uncomfortable. but I mean, even like the fight that occurs in chapter one between a coach and player was not really a fight. It was more like a scuffle. That, that I think like sometimes they allow things to go a little too far, but it was always a little too far. And, you know, like they have this thing called Pride Panel and it's like this tribal council of player leaders and coaches where like they fuck shit up. I mean, like they get in their faces and they confront them and ask them questions that have no right answer. And that's the point. It's It's to make them uncomfortable and deal with something under duress. Because what if the first time, you're made to feel uncomfortable by an authority figure is by a college coach. You work so hard to get the scholarship and you're finally there and you made it and your family is proud and the coach calls you a name and you flip the hell out, you know, then you're done. It's all over. (laughs) But if you're used to people getting in your grill and calling you names, you're just like, "Uh, okay, you know, it's it's just not a thing. Or if, or, or what if that happens during a traffic stop, you know, that could be a matter of life and death. And so it's a conditioning exercise. I mean, I say it in the first you know, couple of pages. It's like learning to recognize and beat the blitz. Like you see it coming, you know how to step out of the way, and it's just not a thing anymore. And yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, like the, because there was always a level of control and strategy behind even confrontations that appeared chaotic whereas Dilfer's it looked like just a moment where he just lost his shit and it happened in front of however many hundreds of people who were who were like not part of the family as it were and so mm-hmm. you know even if even if he did mean well it happened where me and you were now talking about it and wondering what he was trying to do where that that doesn't happen at car because everything is controlled it is an absolute controlled setting whereas the rest of the world is not
1: yeah yeah that that that's that's my take on it and that's That's a great point. That's that's also kind of why I think it was bullshit in terms of how he behaved. Because if you need to have those kind of confrontations, that's the thing that happens behind closed doors, not on the sidelines in front of everybody. Kent, this has been just a real treat for me. Uh, As I keep saying, your book is is stunningly good, and it's about everything we need to be thinking about, and it's also just such a great read and such a uh, uh, such a great example of storytelling it's so to me the the greatest piece of um cinematic art is the wire right and and this is kind of like the wire and it starts with an institution a high school football team but then just radiates out and radiates out into this portrait of a city and the people who live in the city and yet it's not it's not a slog. It's not homework. It's not eating your vegetables. It is such a well-told story. And like you said, when it's effortless, that means a lot of effort went into it. So I can't write, it's the best book I've read this year. I can't recommend it highly enough.
0: Ben, thank you so much, man. That, that really does mean a lot to me. I, I appreciate that you get it and that other people have gotten it because you never really know. I mean, mm-hmm. you really never know. You're firing this rocket out into the sky and you're just you know hope it lands where you hope it, where it actually is gonna land but um, yeah you never really know so i mean just you saying that really means a lot to me
1: wait, wait so i guess last question what's what's the promotional side of this been like for you
0: i mean necessary but difficult i guess like um
1: i love to read about- the book and it's all like super i'm imagining it's a lot of maybe more superficial questions i don't know
0: A lot of it is. I mean, like I did 27 radio interviews in a day and, you know, I had talking points and, you know, it's, you have to, I mean, it's, it's not, this is, it's tough. I mean, because I really believe in this book. I mean, I believe that the story is universal and human. And if people actually read it, you will like it. I mean, and that's not me being brag it's just like the story not me the story like i could i could only screw this thing up i promise the story is is just that good but it's really hard to explain it to people quickly like if i have eight minutes on public radio in spokane you got to say that there's a murder problem in new orleans you got to say that there's this 400 pound coach and you got to say that you know this is black america but it's really hard to make people care it's really hard to get people's attention and it's even harder to keep it um especially now and so i i mean it's weird because like i don't think this is an easy book for for people especially white people to read but it's i mean i i wish it was necessary reading because i mean it changed me and i thought i was like fairly open-eyed um but I mean, my mom is very conservative in South Carolina and has always been like a pull yourself up by your bootstraps person. And she called me and was just like, yeah, I'll never say that ever again after reading this. Mm. You know, you just, you don't know how hard it is. And and look, I mean, I I honestly believe that if you trade a little bit of your comfort for understanding you're better off like that's the price like i learned that through this like me crossing that bridge i mean i didn't live in new orleans i flew back and forth from dc to new orleans 19 times including 10 straight weekends with a then two-year-old um my wife did not love that um but i had to and knew this was a big deal knew this was important but just had to keep crossing that bridge had to keep doing it had to be uncomfortable And, and now because of that, I I think I have a much better understanding mean, I truly believe you can have understanding or you can have comfort, you can't have both. And I traded some of my comfort for a lot of understanding. And I think that's ultimately, you know, what this is. I mean, it's, it's packaged like a football book, but it's not. Um, It's a social justice book that has some football shit in it. (laughs) And it's about a football team. So like, I had to figure out how to recognize and beat the cover three. Um, but you know, it's, it's not about football, but it's a little bit. And so it's, 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 even now it's hard for me to explain succinctly, but that's okay. I guess I got 320 pages to do it.
1: <laughs> right. It's a masterpiece. And I, I do not use that word lightly.
0: Well, thank you so much. I really, that I, I get goosebumps when you said that. So thank you.
1: It, in fact, I sort of had the thought. know one of the greatest non-fiction narrative books ever is um speaking of dc richard ben richard ben kramer's what it takes and and that's kind of the thought i had when i was reading it that it's 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 similar to just we're going to just radiate out and radiate out and all of it is masterfully told
0: what it what it like you don't nobody should compare their work to what it takes because like that's i mean speak about a true masterpiece but I do think that my book is about what it takes to succeed, you know, and like how damn hard it is to, for people like Joe and fat and Leonard and Leonte, And that's just for young kids, like just how hard and how different it is. So I'm glad I did it. I hope people read it I hope they absorb it. And um, I think it's really important work and I'm very proud of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the central contradictions of the book, right? That, I mean, what Coach Brown is trying to do is teach his players how to navigate a rigged game that they almost, by definition, can't win. And and the toll, the toll that that takes. Uh, but it's funny because, I, you know, I keep saying, like, it just, it sounds like vegetables, but it's all like steak and dessert. It's so well done. So anyway, I, I can... You've got stuff to do, and I could go on forever about that. Well,
0: if anybody reads the first chapter and think it tastes like Brussels sprouts, nope. uh, I I doubt it. Nope. <laughs> I, it, like it. it sounds cocky, but like it's just too much shit happens, and that's that's real world down there. If people read the first chapter, they won't be able to stop.
1: Exactly, the book is Across the River: Life, Death, and Football in the American City. Best book I've read this year. As I said, a masterpiece. I can't recommend it strongly enough. So after listening to this. Go out and get it great holiday gift, great gift to yourself. And Kent, please tell people where they can find you.
0: Uh, I'm on Twitter at Kent Bab. I'm on Instagram at by Kent Bab. And uh, the book is available everywhere. uh, Online retailers at your local independent bookstores. If you don't mind spending the extra seven bucks, I really think that these independently owned bookstores, particularly black owned bookstores really, really, really need us. So seven bucks to us, maybe staying open for them. So I try to support my local bookseller as much as I can. I don't love paying 27 bucks when I can pay 20, but it actually means a lot and it makes you feel good. So uh, buy it wherever, but if you don't mind, buy it from a local (laughs) bookstore uh, because it it actually does make a really big difference.
1: Okay, thank you so much.
0: Ben, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, man. This is a good conversation.
1: That was my interview with Kent Babb. As you hear throughout the conversation, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. The best book I've read this year. Do yourself a favor. Do a family member or friend a favor. Buy the book, buy them the book. Across the river, Life, Death, and Football in an American City. This is Ben Guest. You can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.